for being here this evening. For those of you who have not met me, I, I hope that we meet by the end of this evening. My name is Kirsten Cullenberg. I am the Director of Programs here at the World Affairs Council. Tonight, we celebrate the annual Mel Cusin National Security Lecture, welcoming Dr. Robert Litvak, uh, Senior Vice President for Scholars and Director of International Security Studies at the Wilson Center. Our discussion will be moderated by a good friend of ours at the Council, Amanda Schnetzer, who uh, formerly served as the Director of Global Initiatives and Human Freedom at the Bush Institute, among her many uh, accomplishments. Uh, I would like to begin by thanking a couple of very important people in the room this evening, starting with our good friends Ray and Dion Termini. Their generous support tonight and sponsorship of the Melcusian uh, National Security Lecture has made this possible. Uh, Ray and Dion were longtime friends of, of Melcusian before he passed, and we appreciate your sponsorship and your continued support of the council and our mission, please. I'd also like to uh, give a shout out to our dear friend, Sally Unger, who has uh, worked very closely with uh, the council in planning this event this evening. She uh, brought a group of people out uh, that, from her community and we are so grateful to her support. She is maybe one of our best advocates for membership in the community. So uh, a round of applause for Sally, please. I'd also like to thank our promotional partner in the John G. Tower Center. Uh, Dr. Hollyfield is here in the front row. Thank you very much for your partnership. Um, and I also want to extend a special thank you to all of our friends here at the Warwick Melrose. Um, it's always great to be here. Uh, occasional valley issues aside, and I want to thank you all for your patience on that front this evening. Uh, and just a reminder, if you tell them, Valet, that you're with the World Affairs Council this evening, they should not charge you. So if they do, I'm going to come out and knock some skulls. So I just want to let you all know. Uh, very finally, I want to thank some of the council's institutional partners. Our newest ones are NEC Corporation of America and Lockheed Martin, who returned to the council after several years of a hiatus. Um, and I'd also like to recognize American Airlines and their contributions for helping us bring fantastic speakers like Dr. Litvak out for this program. Um, we have a couple of special um, you know, uh, guests this evening joining us, including the Consul General of Norway, uh, based in Houston. I want to thank you for being here this evening. A round of applause for our, uh, our, our diplomatic corps here in Texas. Finally, it is my pleasure to welcome my good friend, Ray Termini, to the podium. Uh, thank you again, Ray, for your support for this evening, and he'll kick our program off. Good afternoon. I have been asked to give a few personal remarks about Mel Cusin of blessed memory before I introduce the speaker and the moderator. After a successful business career and active civic leadership, when in his 70s, Mel finally had the time to pursue his interest in global affairs. More than 20 years ago, he combined the activities of the DFW, uh, the DFW World Affairs Council and the Dallas American Jewish Committee to form their partnership called the International Perspective Series. Each year, Mel had the amazing ability to select topics months in advance that would prove to be of global significance at the time the lecture was given. In later years, when planning for his retirement as director of IPS, he shared with me his tricks, his tricks of the trade in making IPS programs so popular. These tricks included not only choosing topics that would be pertinent months in the future, but also selecting speakers who could make the topics both interesting and understandable. He particularly wanted speakers 
with good communication skills, such as professors who are popular with their students, writers who know how to engage their readers, and people who have served in the diplomatic corps. As Friends of Mel will attest, we appreciated his passion in pursuing learning and discovering intellectual challenges. This search for learning included his travel to the UK each year with his dear companion, Sally Unger, to attend classes at Oxford. We also enjoyed our discussions with Mel on a vast range of topics. He was writing a book at the time of his death about his experiences in World War II. I was fortunate enough to read a chapter. It is too bad that he was not able to complete it. We could have had him as an IPS speaker. <laughs> Mel was an ardent supporter of the World Affairs Council, as well as the Center for Presidential History and the John Tower Center for Political Studies. Mel became close friends with Jim Hollifel, who's the director of the Tower Center, and Jeff Engel, director of the Center for Presidential History. Jim is here tonight, and we hope to see uh, Jeff later. Mel also became close friends with many of the speakers at IPS, including Dr. Robert Litvak. Rob is a well-recognized US expert on nuclear weapons. He is currently Senior Vice President for Scholars and Director of International Security at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars in Washington, DC. He is also a consultant to the Los Alamos National La uh, Laboratory, which addresses U.S. energy, environmental, and nuclear challenges. Rob served as the director for nonproliferation on the National Security Council under the first Clinton administration. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and received a doctorate in international relations from the London School of Economics. From 2000 to 2014, he was an adjunct professor of security studies in Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. From 2008 to 2016, Rob was an SMU Mustang. When he served as a member of the advisory program on national security and defense at SMU's Tower Center. Because of his almost 40 years of service with the Wilson Center and his national recognition as an expert on nuclear security, Jane Harmon, when she was president and CEO of the Wilson Center, re referred to Rob as the canary in the nuclear coal mine, <laughs> warning us of the growing and present, persistent nuclear threats. Rob has authored, co-authored, and edited over 85 publications in regarding national, secu national security and U.S. foreign policy. His most recent book, Managing Nuclear Risks, is a comprehensive overview of the current nuclear threats to American security. Our moderator for tonight's discussion is Amanda Schnetzer, who is well known in the DFW area for her work in, in the global arena with the Dallas Committee on Foreign Relations and the George W. Bush Institute. She, held, she holds degrees from Georgetown and SMU, where she graduated Phi Beta Kappa, and is a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. 
Amanda started her career by serving with Freedom House and the American Enterprise Institute, which are two globally recognized public policy research organizations. Perhaps one of her most famous or important positions in the global arena was to serve as a founding director and part of the startup leadership team of the George W. Bush Institute. She worked closely with former President George W. Bush and First Lady Laura Bush to develop global policy and programming to support human rights, democracy, and emerging women leaders throughout the world. Recently, Amanda, Amanda co-founded First Then Inc., her own startup company, where she currently serves as CEO. First Then is a digital health company that works to ensure that all families have access to quality ADHD care how and when they need it. Please join me in welcoming Amanda Schnitzer and Dr. Robert Litvak. <clears throat> Good evening. How is everyone? So full house tonight. Um, I'm so glad to be here. There are so many reasons to be glad to be here. Um, I'll say a couple of quick things. So one is, um, yes, I have personally sort of taken a detour professionally in thinking about the mental health care of youth in this country, but I'm also a firm believer as Condoleezza Rice was, that education, and I'm gonna to add to that, the mental health of young people is really a national security issue. And so I think there's, at least for me, a common thread in, in being here tonight. Um, two other really good reasons to be here tonight, actually three. One is, it's really hard to say no to the fabulous staff of the World Affairs Council. This is such a wonderful organization. They work incredibly hard. What you see on the surface here tonight is only a fraction of what's gone on to make an evening like this successful, and they're really um, a wonderful group of people and delighted to always say yes if I can. The other is Mel Cusin. I had the privilege of knowing Mel. He was kind. He was curious. He loved the two organizations that are a part of this special evening and series, um, and he loved so many of you in this room, I know, and so it was really a privilege to be a part of this event tonight. And the third is Rob Litvak. He is just such an expert in um, all things nuclear that it's gonna be Maybe, a, I'm glad everybody's had a drink already tonight, um, a sobering conversation in all of its dimensions, um, but also a lively and very, very timely one. So, shall we get started? Please. Okay. Um, first thing, before we jump into front page above the fold or whatever version of that you, you read in the 21st century, um, I always love to ask speakers, what's beyond the bio? What, the bios are great, but what's beyond the bio? And why, why nuclear nonproliferation? Why national security? Why have you been inspired and to dedicate a lifetime's career to, to these topics? Would love to hear your story, especially for any young people who are thinking about careers in public service and national security. Well, you know, the, the issues are so consequential. I mean, when you're in college and, and the old line from Animal House, you know, pre-med, pre-law, what's the difference? Um, <laughs> I, I, I went to graduate school and at the London School of Economics and I had a, a, a brilliant uh, alcoholic Welsh PhD supervisor uh, <laughs> who got me involved in, in international relations. And my first uh, you know, book was on um, uh, post-Vietnam US policy. And the, the, the big topic was, how does a great power like the United States 
navigate retrenchment in the world. You will we'll all recall the post-Vietnam kind of withdrawal from uh, to a more kind of uh, uh, sustainable role in the world. And that was that book. And then uh, I got into, in the 80s, I worked on U.S.-Soviet, what we then call U.S.-Soviet competition in the third world, because there were two routes by which people thought there could be a war with the Soviet Union. Hmm. One route was in Central, Central Europe, uh, sort of the Red Army will decide to wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day and decide to w invade West Germany. No one really knew how that kind of war would, would, would start. The other route was a an area in the periphery, like uh, Korea, Vietnam, that would, uh, Iran would suck in the superpowers. And when the Cold War ended, I then pivoted into the nuclear proliferation area. It was sort of a, an extension of that. Um, and I worked on the National Security Council staff when the term rogue state entered the US foreign policy lexicon. And it was after the Cold War and Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. So this category, and it wasn't a professor, no offense, Jim, creating a, a neologism to debate with his students, but it was the President of the United States saying, asserting that rogue states constituted a distinct category of states in the system that led me into the current research area that I'm in. It's fascinating. And thank you for your years of service <clears throat> in this arena, including um, teaching at my alma mater, Georgetown. Um, so, Speaking of university professors and um, people who think and work a lot in these areas, frameworks are key to understanding, sometimes to understanding the world that we live in. And um, you have a framework for thinking about the issues we're going to talk about tonight. And I thought that might be a really good way to kick off the conversation and give us some structure to thinking yeah. about the range well, of issues. The, the topic is, is admittedly a bit heavy for tonight. But um, it's wonderful to be back in Dallas at the World Affairs Council. And particularly a night to honor Mel Cousin, who was just a remarkable uh, individual. I mean, I admired him so much. Mm. Um, he was a positive life force. You just wanted to be around him. He was a renaissance. Uh, as my late grandfather would say, he's a he was a mensch. And uh, we honor his memory. Um, uh, and he had invited me on, on several occasions to speak uh, to this group or to the AJC, I guess the combined meetings that they did. Um, to your question, um, you know, and, and uh, uh, the topic tonight, nuclear threats, let me give you a framework to orient you. I think um, experts um, categorize nuclear threats into three categories. Um, and interestingly, I spoke about each of these categories at different times. The first category uh, is nuclear terrorism. When I first came to, to Dallas, it was after 9-11, and the concern was maybe al-Qaeda could get an atomic bomb. Could they buy, steal, or build one? And uh, fortunately, international efforts were made to secure both weapons and materials to keep them out of the hands of terrorists. That was, that's one category. The second category is, and I came a second time, talk about proliferation, that, that uh, there are nine nuclear weapon states. Um, Iran, uh, North Korea um, tested in 2006. Iran is developing the capability to develop a bomb. Um, so uh, the, the, the second category is the expansion of the nuclear weapons club, so to speak, to new members. And then the third category are relations among the established nuclear weapon states. And when the Cold War ended, and you recall um, the end of the Cold War and the euphoria that, it, that attended to that, the, the assumption was that the risk for great power conflict was very low. That has changed. And tonight, 
um, we meet at a moment which is the most dangerous uh, since, the end, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, with uh, Vladimir Putin rattling uh, nuclear sabers and uh, credible threats of, uh, that he would employ them in the Ukraine theater. Mm. Thank you. I think that's really helpful for understanding the, the landscape tonight. Let's talk about Russia. I'm sure we all want to have a discussion about that tonight. Um, if you just look at the headlines this week, a nuclear submarine purported to have some kind of nuclear weapons capability on it goes missing in the northern um, regions of Russia. The um, trains spotted heading toward the border with Ukraine and some speculation or perhaps validation mm. that there could be nuclear <coughs> munitions or something of that type on board this train. Mm -hmm. um, tell us what do we what else we know what do we know now today about the credibility of these news stories and put that in the context of how real this threat really is. Well, during the period that I worked on the Soviet Union, uh, I lived in Moscow uh, for a period. I was there in April 1986 when Chernobyl happened, and that was uh, quite an experience and uh, there was no internet or the communications weren't bad weren't good. The winds the prevailing winds were not prevailing. And uh, I got a communication from home. Um, Moscow wasn't affected much by the radiation. I was uh, a friend uh, sent me a telegram, you know, that dates the story. And I just replied back, um, no glow, no go. Um, <laughs> uh, that I was going to that I was going to that, that I was going to just stay in, in, in Moscow. Russian power um, and, and Putin did not go to Gorbachev's funeral because he viewed the collapse of the Soviet Union as the biggest calamity of the 20th century. Um, political power in, in Russia is now more personalized than at any time since Stalin. There's no circle around him to control, control his, his actions. Um, Putin is a serial miscalculator um, mm -hmm. and risk taker. Uh, in 2018, he assassinated a Russian defector in Salisbury, England. He used a nerve agent. It wasn't like in Godfather 1 at the end, you know, just a normal kind of hit. And, and Marshall McLuhan used to say, the medium is the message. They used a nerve agent that could have had, you know, catastrophic consequences for Salisbury and the surrounding area. All the reasons why experts pointed, the, the, the reasons that po experts pointed to that why invading Ukraine would be a disaster um, and, and, and why, Putin, in the end, Putin would would uh, saber his rattle, uh, rattle his sabers, but his conventional weapons, but he would not invade. In the end, he, he, he surprised us, surprised the analytical community and government and outside government by invading uh, Ukraine. The Russian, the, 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 the startling uh, um, kind of revelation in this, in, these in this special military operation, as you describe it, is the, as the British would say, the shambolic state of the uh, Russian military, which is now um, on the verge of folding. And it's in that context that Putin has repeatedly threatened possible nuclear use. The last speech he gave uh, last week was, um, to use the technical social, sci uh, social uh, psychotherapeutic term, was unhinged. Um, he was. Uh, um, he said that the United States had set a precedent of using atomic weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and um, 
Russia might might feel in, in, entitled to, to do the same. So the the risk of of nuclear use is um, not high, but it's not as low as we're used to it used to it being. And there's debate about how would he employ a nuclear weapon. It wouldn't have great um, military utility. It would be kind of a um, form of shock therapy to use the weapon uh, under a strategy that the Russians call, which we term, escalate to de-escalate, to escalate to then essentially, again, to use the technical social science term, freak out Western powers to, <laughs> to um, uh, clamp down on Zelensky and, enfor and force him to take a territorial settlement that would be favorable to, to, to Russia. Hmm. So if you're the United States, if you're our NATO allies, and if you're in conversation with um, Zelensky, what are the range of considerations and options do you think that are being discussed today? In the event of nuclear use, you mean? Yes. Okay. Or um, to forestall it or to prevent it. Well, the, the, the Biden administration's policy is strategic ambiguity. Um, from president, the president to the national security advisor to the secretary of state, they've alluded to catastrophic consequences. Um, a national security council official said, if Russia uses nuclear weapons, all bets are off. Um, and are hoping that that ominous kind of um, ambiguous warning will be sufficient to deter uh, Putin. Uh, the national security council um, uh, as reported by David Sanger in the New York Times this week, has been doing contingency planning, whether the, whether the use might be a demonstration shot like over the Black Sea. It could be used against um, a military target in Ukraine or, uh, God forbid, a, a small, small city. Um, it wouldn't have great uh, military or, or uh, military utility. Um, but uh, uh, Putin is increasingly desperate. He keeps doubling down. He burns the bridges behind him, uh, mixing metaphors here, off ramps. You know, he, he just is, is uh, neglecting the, the off, uh, eschewing off ramps that, he, that he's had. And he keeps doubling down with the annexation of these province, eastern Ukrainian provinces to become part of Russia proper. So um, the contingency planning is happening if. If Russia used a nuclear weapon, it would, the stakes would really transcend Ukraine at that point. It would become a world order issue. And I think the likelihood is that there would be a NATO response of some kind, probably against um, Russian forces in Ukraine, uh, perhaps the Black Sea uh, fleet. But there are others who talk about maybe it would be done in tandem or as an alternative, turning Russia even to, into more of a pariah state than it is now cutting them off from international commerce. Um, uh, and, uh, but yet, Russia retains you know, this large nuclear arsenal that could, could um, put the United States out of business as a society you know, in, in, in 30 minutes. So just a really uh, a situation that's fraught uh, with risk. And we're in uncharted territory, mm -hmm. really. Is there any <clears throat> European leader or other global leader that has his, that has Putin's ear, that has the potential to have any influence on his decision-making at this point? Evidently not. I mean, uh, and we've got the great kind of European expert, Jim Hollifield, in, in, in the audience. But, but uh, um, Macron has met with him. Uh, Angela Merkel met with him. Um, I studied Russian. 
I'll, just, I'll use the Russian word, which I think has a, is a reasonable cognate into English. Angela Merkel described him as ni normalnaya, okay? And uh, um, um, so uh, there's, no, there's really no constraints. He's getting, um, so it seems, very skewed, a happy talk from the people around him because he's got yes, yes men, da men, chilovyek around him. So uh, he's, he's not getting um, uh, that type of, of uh, reality check. And yet, um, you know, the situation on the ground is what it is. And um, I think the real rub is, is that you have the Ukraine crisis on the one hand, and then you've got the future of our relationship with Russia on the other hand. The Biden administration's policy is contradictory. It is our policy toward Russia is not regime change, but normal relations with Russia are not possible as long as Putin reigns in the Kremlin. All right. Um, Putin has his own uh, formulation, which is that Russian nuclear policy is that nuclear weapons will only be used in, when there is an existential threat to Russia. But he defines or he holds synonymous Russia with the survival of his regime. So if he's going down, um, he could act in, in an unpredictable way. Um, and it's, that's what adds to the fraught situation. Mm. Speaking of U.S. policy, you served at the National Security Council mm -hmm. during the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how the sausage is made. If you were at the NSC this week, mm -hmm. who's at the table? Who, what is the range of conversation? <clears throat> what decisions are people trying to make? What is that atmosphere like in a, in a period or in a week like this? I mean, you know, it's, it's frenetic and, and late night food orders and, <laughs> and, um, um, and they're working through contingency plannings and the, the National Security Council kind of work, orchestrates the interagency process so they would have inputs from um, State Department, Defense Department, Department of Energy because of the, the nuclear dimension, CIA with a read, their estimates on, on Putin's you know, state of mind and what, what he might do. Presumably there are some um, uh, national intelligence assets in Russia um, that are, are highly classified to give some sense of what's going on in, inside the, the, the Kremlin, we hope. Um, the alternative to that is that it's opaque, and we really don't know what's going on inside, inside the Kremlin. I think it's also, uh, so they'd be working through these different scenarios of what Russia might do, and then um, what, would be the, what would be the counter, counter response so that they're not winging it on the, on, on the, on the, on the fly. But, uh, and then heavy consultation with allies so that it's a united front. But Russia has been surprisingly successful um, in that the international sanctions that were brought to bear on Russia after its invasion, really it's only North America and Europe that are really clamping down. Other parts of the world haven't signed on to them. China and India are using this as an occasion to get discounted oil from Russia uh, and circumventing. Yesterday, um, uh, Saudi Arabia aligned with Russia um, with the um, reduction in production of oil to really stick it to the Western economies, in this country in particular. Um, and one wonders if, what would, ha what would be the, the global reaction to Russian nuclear use of a low yield weapon like a kiloton or something that would be a fragment 
a fraction of what was used at Hiroshima. Whether Russia would truly become a pariah state or would the world accommodate to it? China would go back to business after a period of time, uh, India likewise. Um, it's hard to say. Mm. Say a little bit more about China. China has been accelerating its own nuclear capabilities, um, in some ways pulling North Korea closer, although I'm not sure that can be done. It's already close to China. But in this dynamic and in this scenario, what role does China have to play, either positive or, or negative? Well, historically, China has had a, it became a nuclear weapon state in 1964, but it had a small number of deployable strategic nuclear systems. It, it really relied on a minimum deterrent, that it just thought that the possibility, that the, the threat of retaliating uh, for an adversary striking China was sufficient. Under Xi Jinping and his mod, for modern, comprehensive modernization program of the Chinese economy, society, and military, China is building up its nuclear forces to uh, Long-term, they would like to achieve parity with the United States and, 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 and Russia. That'll probably happen by the, by the end of this, this decade. But the, the, the theme of my recent writings, um, if I can just, uh, as they would say in the internet world, or computer world, hyperlink from that thought to, to the next thought. Um, what I've been working on is the, the issue of strategic stability. That after the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, both the United States and the Soviet Union deployed survivable strategic nuclear forces, taking away any incentive for either side, either power, to act first and early in a crisis. There was no advantage. Um, a, a, a Rand Corporation analyst referred to that, uh, that, 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 that the risk of one side or the other having seen an advantage of going first as creating a delicate balance of terror. We've been, we've been really trying to avoid having a delicate balance of terror. And the basis of that was, as, un, as uneasy as it was for us to accept, our vulnerability to the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union's vulnerability to, to the United States. Neither side had an incentive to go first or early in a crisis. China's coming on, and, and it, the, the nuclear um, relationships are moving from kind of what the political scientists call bipolar US-Russia-Soviet, so, now US-Russia, to tripolar with China. But I think that the really um, uh, um, salient development that affects strategic st stability is that all of the powers are modernizing their nuclear forces. Um, the arms control architecture that existed in the 1970s no longer has been dismantled. Uh, so you have unconstrained arms competition, and competition is, is extending into new domains, cyberspace outer space, so that in a crisis, Russia or China could launch a cyber attack or try to blind the United States by taking out our, um, our satellite system that, that, that monitors and, and communicates, uh, blinding us. And that could be viewed as not inherently escalatory because no one's being killed. It's, as they say in the Pentagon, it's non-kinetic. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the, like the old style thinking the old school thinking about escalation back in the Cold War, people thought, oh, there'd be a conventional war, then it would escalate to nuclear. Now, the first salvo in, in a conflict would be most likely in cyber or outer space. And that's, that could recreate mm. these incentives for one side or the other 
to go first and early in a crisis, and that would be highly destabilizing. And the, the real um, bind is that our, at our relations with both China and Russia are at a nadir, and we don't have the ability to have strategic stability talks with either, either power. I mentioned that Putin um, uh, views his regime with synonymous to the survival of, 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 the, Soviet, of the Soviet state. He's really in uh, uncharted waters right now. Okay, Rob, <clears throat> so as if that weren't enough, Let's go to part of your framework on the proliferation side. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to turn to audience questions in just a minute, and so maybe someone will kind of take a deeper dive on mm -hmm. these. But talk a little bit about Iran and, um, and North Korea. Just this week, North Korea fires a yeah. missile over Japan, um, and that's after 22 or 23 other missile firings just since the start of this year. Um, Maybe connect the dots a little bit with Iran and well, that's, North that's, Korea, and then we'll turn to audience questions. North Korea um, is doing its uh, version of the Glenn Close line from uh, Fatal Attraction, I will not be ignored. Uh, so they fired. As they if fired, not to be outdone, right? Yeah, they, they, they decided, uh, good morning, Japan. We're firing a missile over Honshu. Um, uh, proliferation. Um, Word of context, um, President Kennedy gave a speech at the United Nations General Assembly, and he posited that by the 1970s that there could be 35 or so nuclear weapon states. People thought there would be a lot of nuclear proliferation. Basically, we have nine nuclear weapon states, the five permanent members of the UN, United States, uh, Russia, China, France, Britain, uh, three states uh, that exercise their sovereign right to not join the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, India, Pakistan, and Israel, which is an acknowledged nuclear weapon state, though they're undeclared. And then North Korea, and a tenth uh, with the potential to acquire nuclear weapons is Iran. Now, we treat Iran and North Korea differently than the three states that exercise their uh, sovereign right not to join the NPT, because North Korea and Iran were inside the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and were cheating within it. But also, um, we focus not just on capabilities, but also it's linked to some sense of capabilities with hostile intent. So yes, Israel is a nuclear weapon state, but surprise, shock, horror, the United States, we worry more about Iran than Israel, okay? So Iran, Iran and, and North Korea were two of the states that were designated as rogue states after the Cold War. Uh, when the Soviet, the then Soviet threat receded, um, and Saddam Hussein had invaded Iraq. So you had this core group, the rogues gallery, Iraq, Libya, North Korea, uh, Iran, the rogues gallery. And the term rogue was an American political concept. It doesn't have standing in international law. A set of states that were d diverse, that were hostile to the United States. But the, at the nub of, of the, the concept of, of, of rogue state was that the threat posed by the rogue states was not the capabilities per se, but it was the character of the regimes. Mm -hmm. And that fed into uh, the, the pivot to regime change after 9-11, after which occurred in Iraq in 2003 and Libya in, in 2011. With Iran, um, Iran has a nascent nuclear program. It's, it's, it's developed the ability to enrich uranium, which is one of the pathways to nuclear weapons acquisition. But it's not cross the line. It's not a crash program to get a weapon as quickly as possible. This is technology of the 
generation of uh, Glenn Miller and slide rules. It's not esoteric technology. The first time uh, a, an atomic bomb was used using highly enriched uranium, the uh, Oppenheimer was so co confident in it, we never tested it. Uh, the first test was Hiroshima. The first, the first test conducted in 1945, the Trinity test in New Mexico, was with an implosion device using uh, plutonium. So this is, if, if Iran wanted to bomb, it, it, with the industrial complex they have, they would have, they would have developed one. I think a hedge, the potentiality to, 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 to break out if they needed to, but without crossing the line that would, would have regional and international baggage, that if Iran became an overt nuclear weapon state, Saudi Arabia would do what the Saudis do, which is add a zero to the check to the Pakistanis and buy one, and, and there would be more proliferation. North Korea really is, 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 is the, the hard case. Um, where it was unchecked and it has a tortured history of how North Korea got to the point it is. It has 30 to 60 nuclear weapons. It has intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, its economy, brace yourself, is $50 billion. That's the size of Dayton, Ohio. You look at the night visual of the Northeast Asia, the, the, the region with $26 trillion economy in China, 10 trillion in Japan, 2 trillion in, 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 in um, uh, South Korea. The night visual in North Korea is a single dot. So they've impoverished their society. It has a $50 billion uh, GDP, as my late father-in-law would say, that's billion with a B, not trillion with a T. And, um, but yet they pose, they, they have a credible capability to strike the U.S. homeland, which led to the uh, summit meetings that uh, former President Trump engaged in. But those, 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 um, uh, those summit meetings did not bend the curve on North Korean developments one iota. Um, it changed the psychology of the crisis by, in a sense, normalizing Kim Jong-un on the international stage. He was no longer viewed as this crazy you know, cult leader, which, you know, in my humble opinion, he is. But, uh, um, uh, um, uh, the threat from North Korea is probably is, is, is the, the sleeper acute threat. Yeah. So many things I would like to ask, but I want to defer to our audience. But by the way, if you've never Googled satellite imagery of North Korea at night, go home and do that tonight. It is a stark, stark contrast in the region of light. It is absolute and utter darkness. So Can I ask the audience a question, which was, I covered a lot of ground. I, was, I had to necessarily be telegraphic. Was it clear? Okay. All right. I just wanted. So, I just wanted. Okay. Questions. Oh no! Two of my favorite people, hands up at the same time. But I'm going to go to Bob Hudspeth first, and then to Ray, and then back to the back of the room. Uh, a really quick question, but referring to North Korea, an article I was reading says they have offensive missiles, but they have no defensive missiles. Mm -hmm. And they're very worried when they see carrier Reagan come in and some other things because they can't really defend themselves against a missile attack. Is that authentic reporting? The, North Korea does not have a ballistic missile system. You're correct. I think the, 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 the concerning thing to the North Koreans, I mean, the Kim family, we're now in our third Kim, um, you know, it's, it's a family firm, and their sole motivation is regime survival. 
And when they see, I mean, U.S. deployments um, in the region, but um, South Korean special forces practicing decapitation, you know, to a commando raids to take out or precision strike um, uh, systems to attack the regime itself, um, that really is is um, central to them. And if there were to be a, a, a if if a conflict were to break out on the Korean Peninsula. Um, the early targeting would be to, to go after the regime itself. But that, in turn, could precipitate kind of a spasmodic kind of uh, retaliation mm. in the region. Um, North Korea um, has uh, a, a, an intercontinental ballistic missile. It has, according to the Defense Intelligence Agency, miniaturized a warhead that could fit atop that. The one piece that they've not demonstrated has been the reentry um, and guidance. Uh, surviving the reentry heat and the, di the, the thermodynamics of, of, of entry, reentry into the atmosphere. They've not demonstrated that, and that's a non-trivial technology. I wouldn't bet that they couldn't do it, but uh, it took the United States a fair bit of testing to kind of work that out. Um, the, but it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary society where you have this cult of personality. Uh, an economy the size of Dayton, Ohio, GDP-wise, with this a nuclear force rivaling Britain and France, and the ability to target the, target the United States, the, the the regime. I mentioned this at SMU today when I met with faculty and students, are running a grotesque kind of eugenics experiment. They're feeding their population under 2,000 calories a day, and there are now physical differences between North and South Koreans that according to The Economist magazine, a 10-year-old in North Korea is five centimeters shorter than his South Korean counterpart because of diet. And you'd think that, 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 that there'd be a revolution against the regime. And yet it's been perversely hyper-stable. It's hung in there year after year when there, when there have been, you know, when you would have thought there would be an uprising against the regime. But it's, it, it persists, and the cult of personality uh, is extraordinary. Mm. Ray. Okay. Is there a way of judging at this time whether Iran is closer to developing a nuclear weapon than it was four years ago? And a, a second point to that question <clears throat> is, what should a new JCPOA include yeah. that wasn't covered before? For example, for example, restrictions on the range of nuclear of ballistics. <laughs> Excuse me. Great question. Thank you. Um, Iran, um, Iran was is, is party to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, I think our negotiators who who uh, concluded that in the late '60s uh, would have edited the document if they could, because under the the grand bargain of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, you had certain states that had nuclear weapons that were brought into the treaty as nuclear weapon states. Other states who, who signed up, they received a security assurance that they wouldn't be blackmailed by, black, by the nuclear weapon states. And they would also have access to peaceful nuclear energy, okay, which has been interpreted as allowing uh, a civil nuclear energy program, including the enrichment of uranium. Um, uh, to theoretically uh, fuel nuclear reactors. The dilemma is that centrifuges, um, and there's an industrial process to enrich uranium. 
and 5% of enriched uranium is good for a reactor, 90% or 60% plus for probably closer to 90% for a bomb. The centrifuges that spin to enrich low enriched uranium to fuel, to fuel reactors can keep spinning to enrich highly enriched uranium that can be used in, 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 a, in, in a weapon. So Iran claimed, and unfortunately the rest of the world backed up Iran's claim, that they were entitled to this technology under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And um, so they've developed the ability to enrich uranium, which opens the door to weapons acquisition. The joint, the, the, the Iran nuclear deal was, trans, the, in, in public policy, there's a distinction made between transactional and transformational policies. The, the Iran nuclear deal of 2015 was transactional. It was focused just on the Iranian nuclear program. It didn't include other issues like Iran's regional role, its human rights record, the whole panoply of issues that we have with, with Iran. It was a defensible decision by the Obama administration, which judged that if they didn't go for a narrow deal, that Iran, that leadership, the, 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 the clerical leadership, would never sign on to a grand bargain covering all these other issues. The idea was to constrain Iran's uranium enrichment program, which the, the JCPOA did by putting limits on it, uh, constraints, ensuring that it remained low enriched uranium. Some materials were taken out of, the, out of Iran to Russia. There were um, International Atomic Energy Agency monitors there. Then in 2018, uh, President Trump withdrew the United States uh, from the JSPOA, saying it was the worst deal ever made. That says a lot. Um, uh, and uh, once the United States was, was out of the deal, um, which constrained Iran's program, they began to enrich uranium to higher percentages. So now they're closer to, the, to a bomb than they were when they were under the agreement. And it's very much in doubt. But, but the, the, the dispute in our own politics here are that if they do another JCPOA and it's just narrow, narrowly confined to the, the nuclear portfolio, it will be in, intensely criticized because it's not transformational. It doesn't include the regional role. It doesn't include all of, all of these issues. Essentially an unattainable deal uh, with, with Iran now. And as a card-carrying uh, utilitarian, I supported the JCPOA to try to constrain Iran's nuclear program. These other issues have to be dealt with in their own, um, in their own right. We don't have too much time left, but I want to make sure we get a question from our distinguished diplomatic guest here. I believe has a question. Sorry for the long-winded answers, but I'm trying to provide some context to, to these no. questions, which to unpack it, and there's a lot there. There's a lot. Thank you very much. Uh, so my name is Hilde Skorpen, and I have, I'm the Consul General for Norway in Houston. Uh, I spent probably most of my uh, time in the Foreign Ministry uh, working on nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation, so it's fantastic to be here. I also wrote my dissertation on Norwegian security policy during the Cold War era, and I was so happy when it was, 20, when it was uh, the 90s and I could put it in a drawer and think, this is so outdated, I never will have to think about it again. Uh, I'm very, very Here sad that we have to, and uh, I think that we are very seriously 
worried about the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Europe now. More so, you said this is the most dangerous period since the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I really, really think it is. It's, it's absolutely horrific. I'm here to talk to the Norwegian Society of Texas tomorrow uh, about the changing uh, security policy environment of Norway. Uh, and um, uh, this is this this is uh, this is this and of course the whole uh, the uh, sabotage of uh, mm -hmm. of the uh, gas uh, uh, pipelines yeah. and all of that is just uh, like every day we are we are seeing this uh, uh, it, it's uh, <laughs> the security environment is deteriorating yeah. and it's it's uh, I thank you so much for this lecture it was I've read a lot of your writings mm -hmm. and uh, talking about uh, the way Putin is behaving like right now it's like uh, we are revisiting some of those theories of uh, the rationality of irrationality in a way uh, and 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 what will the response be to that um, you know could you just speculate a little bit around that so I can seem even more educated on this when I talk to uh, <laughs> tomorrow about this thank you yeah. well in in uh at SMU, or they teach political science, they refer to the levels of analysis. So you have the system level, like states interacting with each other, creating a balance of power to create a stable system. Then they talk about the state level, like, and, and the view that democratic, states with democratic governance um, don't go to war with each other. And so we should try to be promoting democratic governments with governance, uh, because that's a pathway to peace. The third level um, is the individual. And political scientists, as I joke to Jim, you know, they try to create theories that, that uh, cover um, Thomas Jefferson, Golda Meir, and Adolf Hitler. And uh, you know, you, there, there's, no, there's no kind of theory to explain it. You have in Putin personalized power. And I had the pleasure of visiting your country and taking the cruise up the coast just outside of uh, to Murmansk, basically. You know, uh, it was a fantastic experience. Um, and um, uh, uh, you see the front line there. But I'm with you. I mean, I put away dissertations thinking that we, you know, it was a bygone era. Because, and, and you asked me, we were talking about containment before. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're back to basics. Basic, the basic US grand strategy, as it's called in, 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 the, in the political science, has been integration. That the United States and Britain, after World War II, through the, uh, the international economic uh, organizations were created. The idea was integrate states in to create a Pacific international system. Kennan said the Soviet Union under Stalin is not capable of integrating into the society. So the alternative policy, and it's really been our default alternative policy, it's not been regime change like in Iraq and, and elsewhere. It's been containment, a balance of power to allow internal forces to play out over time organically and when they're ready to integrate into the system, then they will be, they will be welcomed in. And the dilemma now is, is how, really the future of Russia um, and what will be our policies, because we are in uncharted, uh, uncharted water. And it's unclear what, if any, checks there are around Putin in the regime. I mean, people talk about, you know, um, uh, basically, the, the West has been offering Putin two options, um, a bullet, or a cage in The Hague you know, on war crimes. Early in the war, there was hope that maybe someone in his own you know, uh, regime circles, one of the oligarchs, they'll take him out. And you recall in February, March, some of our officials were saying, gee, I wish someone would take him out. 
um, really problematic uh, policy. You know, uh, um, uh, you know, you don't you don't say this the silent part out loud, um, and and. Uh, uh, he's got a pretty tight control over, over, over his own regime. The other is he'd end up in the Hague standing trial for a war crime. So he's burned his own um, off-ramps, um, bridges, and, 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 and demolished his own off-ramps. Um, what what my, my understanding is and that, that nuclear use is not solely his decision, that there, it requires um, uh, the, the nuclear control issues is sort of uh, the people who know are... Um, uh, it's, it's, it's an opaque area of, of what it would take to have nuclear use in Russia, probably not just his sole decision. It would take others to act, and hopefully they would, they would stop it. Scott Sagan from Stanford University has said that we should, as part of our declaratory policy, say um, it's a war crime to use nuclear weapons, and those who, part, who participate in that will be held accountable for it to try to deter the Russian military itself from using these weapons. But, um, uh, I wish I could offer a uh, kind of more upbeat analysis, but I noticed, you know, what a strategic calamity for, for Putin. He thought he was going on the offensive. Who would have thought that your fellow Scandinavians, Finland and Sweden, would go off of neutrality and join NATO, and you'd have General Milley in Stockholm Harbor, you know, with uh, U.S. Uh, air, you know, naval vessels to show um, you know, collective strength, and to reinforce the Baltic states, which were former parts of the Soviet Union, and they're really quite vulnerable. Whew. So, Rob, to we've got to wrap things up, and this is a pretty sobering conversation. Anything optimistic on your mind <laughs> <laughs> to send us home? <laughs> um, <laughs> Tall order, I know. Okay, I'm gonna. Um, um, you can make it up, too. That's okay. <laughs> I've started meditating. <laughs> I've, I've stopped uh, doom scrolling uh, on a host of fronts. Um, uh, and the essence of mindfulness is to focus on the moment and the occasion. And the occasion now is we're honoring the memory of Mel Cousin, who was a beautiful human being. Um, and uh, it's wonderful be, to be back in Dallas to honor his memory. May his memory be a blessing. Uh, yesterday was a big day in the faith uh, that he was uh, affiliated to, and uh, this to me is a, an appropriate extension. Um, thank you for your attention. Uh, I wish I could be a bit more upbeat, uh, uh, but uh, uh, in, the, in the Aristotelian formulation, it is what it is. So anyway, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Wow. Uh, thank you very much for being here with us, Dr. Litvak. It was an, an honor to host you this evening. I know that Mel would be incredibly proud of the conversation had here this evening. I didn't know Mel very well. Uh, I knew him for, quite, for just a short time, but he was such an inspiration to so many in the council network alone, let alone in the broader community. Um, it was an honor to know him, and I know that he would be proud this evening. Thank you all for joining us. I'd like to uh, get, grant our speaker a small token of our appreciation, a World Affairs Council travel coffee mug. Oh, that's
Good. Here you are, sir. As I said, I'm a card-carrying utilitarian, so I very much appreciate this. <laughs> Wonderful. You know? And then I want to remind all of our guests that uh, Mel Cusin, before he passed, founded the Devil's Own Chili with his family. They have donated <coughs> uh, chili packets this evening for all of our attendees tonight to enjoy this fantastic recipe. It's really excellent chili. So make sure you grab one on your way out if you haven't already. We have plenty, one for everyone. So enjoy yourself. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, our speaker needs to get to a dinner immediately following the program, so I just ask that you all respect his time. Thank you very much.